Hi everyone, um, my name is Nicole and um, today we're going to um, read from the Bible, from John chapter 19. Um, we've been following Jesus' journey um, to the cross and today um, we, we will continue that. Um, so before we read the Bible from John chapter 19 verses 28 to 42, um, we'll spend some time in, in prayer. So um, let's please bow our heads together in, in prayer. Dear God, today we meet together to reflect and consider that your son died on the cross for our sin. Lord, on this day, we hold both the sorrow of our sin, but also the power of your kingdom in our hearts. Today is a challenging day for us as we are confronted by the humiliation of Jesus' death on a cross. I pray that we can respond with grateful hearts. Jesus died on the cross so that we are forgiven for our sins. Lord, fill us with reverence for your glory and power, overcoming sin and death. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you have for us and the, and the love that you have for your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So John chapter 19, but we're going to start at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so this, that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe." These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of mirth and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, 
And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Uh, A happy Good Friday to you all. We're going to work through uh, these last moments of Jesus' life this morning. We're going to see heart-wrenching sacrifice. We're going to see heartbreaking hard-heartedness. We're going to see curiosity and wonder. There is so much packed into this one little scene, and we're going to look at all that together. But before we do uh, look at this, this death of Jesus, we're going to do just a little bit of a science experiment to help us understand a certain point that's going to be helpful for us to understand how this goes down. Uh, This is an article that I found uh, from a few years back uh, that started off with this quote. It said, if a picture is worth a thousand words, scientists now find that not everybody looks at the same words first. So let's do a little uh, experiment here together just to prove this point. Uh, Kids, I might get you guys in particular to help me here with this. All right, so here's a picture, okay? Now here's the thing. According to this experiment, as soon as I put this picture up, Everybody in this room looked at different parts first or lingered on different parts immediately. So kids, who looked first and foremost at the food? That was the first thing that you looked at, yeah? Uh, Who first looked at the little boy? Did you look at his eyes or his mouth? Maybe his ears. And here's the thing. What these guys discovered was in this experiment, essentially what they did was they showed people a bunch of pictures, but at the same time they were filming them to see where their eyes were going on the screen. And scientists found that certain types of details, such as faces, text, food, moving objects, or touched items, attracted the gazes of some observers more than others. So, for example, the fraction of a person's eye movements directed towards faces varied from 17 to 43% among volunteers. Now, what this simple experiment shows us is that we can all be shown the same image, the same picture, and yet, depending on what our interests might be, depending on where we're coming from, maybe even depending on what sort of day we had, we're going to see it differently, or at least pay attention to different details first. And as we work through this story of Jesus' death, my assumption here is that you guys will see different things, that you'll notice different parts of the story as we go. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through the story, we're going to draw out certain parts, and then we're going to think a little bit about how the different people in the story responded to the same stuff that you guys are going to be looking at, and then think about how we can reflect upon that for ourselves. So the basic shape of the story is this. We're going to see Jesus on the cross. We're going to look at the death of Jesus. We're going to look at what the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers do. We're going to see this character of the witness and how it fits with God's plans. And then we're going to think about Joseph and Nicodemus. Now, for those of us that have been here at Living Church week after week, we've been working through John's gospel for a long time, all the way uh, since last year. This was the plan all along, guys, to get to here in Easter 23 and be looking at these passages together. Most recently, we saw last week a little bit about how Jesus got to this place. We're reminded about how he carried his own cross from the place where he'd been interrogated by Pilate and then walked the 600 meters over here towards Golgotha. And we were told that there they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And we were also told about this declaration that Pilate made, despite the fact that it doesn't seem that Pilate came to faith in Christ himself in this 
moment, he still declared Jesus of Nazareth to be the king of the Jews. And it's this king that we now look at as he is hanging on the cross and see his last moments in this world. It says now at the start of our passage, later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A couple of important words here. Jesus, knowing that everything had now been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled. One of the things that we've been looking at as we've worked through John's gospel is that nothing about these Good Friday events, nothing about Jesus' death, nothing about the means by which it took place, nothing about who was involved, was a surprise. That this was all in accordance with God's plan. This was a very deliberate mission that Jesus had been on. Again and again, through John's gospel, we've been told about Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that his mission had come to a time when it now needed to be carried out in full. Jesus knew what was happening. And it's this, this in mind that he speaks these words, I am thirsty, because this is an important point. If Jesus is doing everything now in order to fulfill the scriptures, operating in accordance with God's plan, he's not doing anything by accident in this moment. And so when he declares, I am thirsty, he's not just letting us know that he is parched. He's actually wanting to make a reference to something that has been predicted for some time. And there's a couple of Psalms written many, many centuries before Jesus' death that Jesus is in all likely trying to allude to here as he hangs on the cross. So Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? And in Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. When Jesus says that he is thirsty, he is not simply saying that he's dehydrated. He is saying that he has come to a moment where as he hangs upon this cross, as he bears the weight of the sins of the world upon his shoulders, he longs for God in this moment. He is thirsty for him. Now, that's not the, the message that the guys there watching. They understandably thought that this man who had been beaten and mocked, who now hung painfully upon a cross, was indeed simply thirsty. It says they brought, there was a jar of wine vinegar, that's cheap wine, they soaked a sponge in it, put that sponge on a stalk, and, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he received it, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and, really importantly, gave up his spirit. All along, Jesus has been letting everyone around him know that this is happening in accordance with my plan. Even now, here in his moment of death, it says that he gave up his spirit. He gave up his life. This was not something that was taken from him as though he had no power or authority here. He's already told them that if I wanted to, I could have ended this in any moment. That's the power that's mine. But now he gives up his spirit in order to fulfill the mission that the Father had given to him. Now, those around him, though, not totally understanding the, momentum, the momentousness of this moment, had different reactions. 
We see here what the Pharisees are thinking and the Jewish leaders. It says, now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The day of preparation was the day before the the full feast of the Passover got underway. I know some people have been asking questions about on what day was Jesus crucified and how the different gospel accounts work. Essentially, I think the best explanation is there was a small meal that people would enjoy before the Passover feast started, and then there was a separate large meal that was the feast of the festival that went on for the next week or so. And we see here that Jesus' death occurs between that small dinner and then the large feast. And the the Jewish leaders here, seeing this special Sabbath coming, which means that the Sabbath this year fell on a Saturday. I know that this is not sort of interest for everyone, but I know some of you have been wondering about this stuff. So essentially, uh, the Passover okay, was a little bit like, uh, let's say, it, it fell on the same day of the month every year, but that could be a different day of the week. So the Passover Saturday didn't always land on a Saturday. It could be during the middle of the week. But this time it was a special one because the actual Passover festival landed on the Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath ordinarily. But this is the important bit. This is what the Jewish leaders are worried about. They didn't want the bodies left on the cross over this because... It was against their law. In the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about how you're not meant to leave a body there on the cross exposed on a pole overnight. You have to be sure to bury it on the same day because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. They didn't mind Jesus being cursed. That was kind of the whole point of what they were trying to do. They've been very fixated on Jesus dying on a cross because they want him to be cursed. But what they did not want was for their land to be desecrated. There was this sense that if they broke the law, it's not just the person on the cross who is cursed, but the holy land in which they were living would be desecrated or dishonored. So they were very concerned to make sure that this didn't happen. And so in order to try and speed up the death of those on the cross, they were going to break their legs. I won't go into the details here. Uh, I know there are small ones present as to why they did this and how that effectively would cause these people to die sooner. But that's what they were trying to do. And so it says, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now we're going to see in a second that this was all to be And again, in accordance with Scripture, the very specific details of Jesus' death were in accordance with what had been predicted a very long time ago. But before John explains that to us, he says this, The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and and he testifies to that, sorry, he testifies so that you may also believe. John wants us to know that the events events that are being described here are in accordance with eyewitnesses, people that actually saw them. This is not something that was reported centuries later. This is not something that was a fictionalized story. This was based upon the accounts of people who were actually there and saw what had happened. And the entire reason that they were testifying to this was because they wanted other people to understand and believe in Jesus. And this is the entire focus of John's gospel. 
We've seen this as we've worked our way through the series, but at the very end of his book, John is going to write that these are all written, all the miracles, all the signs and the wonders that I've told you about, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we've got the Jewish leaders, their perspective. We've got the Roman soldiers doing their bit. We've got this eyewitness here, seeing what he has seen. And we've got all this in accordance with Scripture. John writes, these things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. So that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they had pierced. And again, we can look back to the Old Testament and we can see these prophecies, these words have been spoken centuries earlier about the sort of death that the Messiah would die, and it lines up exactly with what's happening here in the gospel. So when he says that not one of his bones will be broken, in Psalm 34 it said, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. What was previously hyperbole to talk about how the Lord would protect his people now that the true righteous one, Jesus Christ, has come, these words are fulfilled, not in a poetic sense, but in a very specific, real, and concrete way. Similarly, when it says they will look on the one they have pierced in Zechariah, it says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Again, what was once general is now very specific as God sees his one and only son on the cross and those around him mourn at the tragedy of his death. Lastly, we have the perspective, though, of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It says that later, after his death, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he had feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And then we have Nicodemus. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, about 30 kilograms in our much more sensible metric system. Now, Nicodemus is a character that we've seen through the gospel at multiple points. He was introduced way back in chapter 3, where he visited Jesus at night in secret, it seems, in order to inquire about him and try and figure out who he is. We then saw him in chapter 7, defending Jesus when the Pharisees were bringing unjust accusations against him and treating him unfairly. And now we see him bringing aloes and myrrh in order to honor his body in his death. And it says that, They took Jesus' body, the two of them, and wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And finally, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, and indeed no one like this had ever been laid in any tomb. Because it it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. In contrast to the Jewish leaders who did not care if Jesus was himself cursed, these guys did not want Jesus falling under that curse of the law and so sought to have him buried before the end of the day in accordance with their customs. Now, like I said, 
That's the story. Okay? And I'm sure that as we went through it, different things were interesting to you in different ways. That's kind of the whole point about us being different and how we can look at the same thing and have different things jump out to us. But what I want to do now is work through a few key words here that all start with the same letter because that's a preacher's trick to help you think and notice a little bit about what's going on with these guys and the reactions that they've had to Jesus on the cross. So three words, detachment, drawn, and declaration. First one, I want you to note the detachment that the Jewish leaders had from this man who was hanging upon the cross. These are the guys who, the entire way through this gospel now, since way back in chapter 5, have been seeking to put Jesus to death. They thought that Jesus was dishonoring God. Despite the miracles that Jesus was doing, despite the words of life that he had been preaching, despite the hope that he was offering, these Jewish leaders had become convinced that Jesus was working against God and dishonoring him and blaspheming him at every point. And their hardness of heart towards him has been increasing all the more. And we've seen good evidence that they were determined to see him crucified, not just because they wanted him dead, but because whoever was hung on a tree was cursed. They wanted it clear to everyone that this man was cursed by God because that's what they thought he was. And we see here now the detachment that they have as he hangs there. They were concerned about this body desecrating their land. And so they asked to have his bones broken simply so that he could die faster. After working so hard to get to the point where he was going to die now so that their land might not be desecrated, they wanted it done even more quickly. At this point, Jesus is no longer human to them. He's no longer a person with feelings. He's no longer an object of sympathy or mercy. There's no discussion here about how Jesus was feeling. This is not mercy. This is simply their concern for their rules and what it might mean for their land and their relationship with God. They were willing to murder and kill and to speed up somebody's death simply to get to a point where they could say that we have fulfilled all righteousness for ourselves. It's possible to look at the cross and not see the reality of what's actually taking place there, where you detach yourself so much from it that the power of the Son of God coming into this world, taking on human form, becoming like one of us, in order to pay the price for our sins and set us free, just carries nothing for you. It's, it's, it's possible to, to go through like a whole year we're just sort of paying lip service to Jesus or something like that. And really nicely, I know there's visitors here and we, you know, we're so glad for you guys to be here and all that sort of stuff, but can I just gently suggest that if you can just ignore Jesus for 364 days of the year and then come along on Good Friday, that maybe you've detached yourself a little bit from the meaning of this moment? That, that actually that, that's not really engaging with and understanding the significance of it? if this is just a one-time-a-year thing. Now, you might not be in quite the hardness of heart to which the Jewish leaders had got to in seeking to literally put Jesus to death and dehumanizing him completely. 
but we can't detach ourselves. It's not something where we, we're meant to look back and simply treat this as some ritual or just something that we do or, so, or something that carries no weight. This is the most profound moment in human history, if it's true. And so some of us look at the cross and we're actually are capable of doing it in some sort of detached way and, and miss the meaning of the moment. So that's the first way that we can look at it. The second one is that we can be drawn to it. Think about uh, Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph is a disciple of Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus, but he's afraid of what people around him are going to think. He feared the Jewish leaders. This was not the first person in the gospel to be afraid of the Jewish leaders. Lots of people were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They could be, they could be jerks. All right? They would come after you if you were believing or proclaiming something that was different to what they thought. But it still tells us that he was a sincere follower of Jesus. And so for some of us, we look at this story and we're drawn to it. We see the power of it. There's something about Jesus that is attractive to us, like, like Nicodemus. You, 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 it never says to us that Nicodemus was a believer, but yet at the same time, Nicodemus can't seem to escape Christ. And even if he's not worshipping him openly, he still wants to honour him because he, he sees something about this man where there's power in it. And maybe you're visiting here with us because that is you. Because you are drawn to Jesus. Because there's lots of distractions that take place during the world, during the, the year, and you don't necessarily detach yourself from Jesus. But when this moment comes back around, you, you're just drawn back towards him again. And maybe you follow him secretly, but you've been too afraid to confess that openly. Maybe you haven't got to a point yet where you're willing to declare full faith in him. But it's entirely possible that some of you here are drawn towards him when you see this story. Others, though, for you, it's more about declaration. When you see the events of the cross, you believe it, you see the truth and the reality of it, and you want to testify to it. You want to tell others about it. You want them to know the power of this moment. You want them to know that it's true. You want them to see the reality of this situation. You want others to come in and experience everything that you have in knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life that he gives to us all. As we work through this story, we all have different reactions to it. You might be detached. You might want to declare or you might be drawn towards it. But I want to point out one last person in this story, because this is the one who speaks to all of us, regardless of where we are at. And that's the one who is hanging upon the cross himself, because he had a deep desire in this moment. It says later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And as we looked at those Psalms there, this is again, not a natural thirst, but a thirst for the Lord. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. See, for each and every single one of us here, we might not have looked at this first. This might not have been the first thing that we saw. But I want you to take a moment now and just dwell on the idea that this man 
who was innocent, who had come into the world from heaven above, who had been sitting at the right-hand side of the Father but become one of us, now hung on a cross after being beaten and mocked and disrespected and dishonored in a completely tragic and sad and horrible way, now hanging on the cross, longs for the Father, but still is focused on accomplishing the mission that was given to him. That when we talk about Easter being all about Jesus, this is the one that we're talking about. One who both thirsts for God in such a way that he is willing to fulfill his mission to the Father, that he longs to serve him and seek him, But he's not just the Lord and Savior in a divine sense in this moment. He is also a very real human being who is setting an example for us to follow. Jesus died upon the cross and paid the price for our sins in order that we might be able to fulfill the thirst that we have for God ourselves. That in the tragedy of this moment, he might speak to those who have become detached and stir something up to say, wait, hold on. How can I have ignored this man who loves in this way? For those of us who are being drawn towards him, to have hope that says, I'm drawn to him because he is the one who actually will fill me and give me what I need. And for those who seek to declare it, to come again and renew our hope and be refreshed as we know that we can drink from the Spirit of the Lord that comes to all who believe and trust in Christ when we see Him clearly on the cross. That He loved us so much that He was willing to give up His Spirit. That He was willing to pay the price in order that we might have hope to live again. This is the one that we rejoice and celebrate in when we come together at Easter. So regardless of whether you are detached, drawn towards declaring or desiring, this morning it's my hope that as you focus on this picture of Christ on the cross, that you would take seriously again the claims that Jesus makes. And whether it's a time of refreshing for you or whether it's coming from the outside and coming to the one who has meant so much to so many people here, to so many through the centuries, through the millennia, that you would cling to this hope that he offers us and that you'd come back on Sunday and hear the good news of his resurrection and rejoice in all that that means for us together. Let's pray together now. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you, Father, whether we've been detached from you drawn to you, declaring you, that, Lord, at Easter time, we we come together and think again about the one who thirsted for the Lord enough to see his mission fulfilled and who sets the example for us and encourage us to know that our thirst can also be filled in God. We pray, Father, that as we celebrate together now in song, but also as we go about our day, as we spend time with family and friends, that, Lord, the message of the cross would linger with us. But, Lord, we would not ignore it. 
We would not desert or abandon it, but rather, Lord, that we would continue to focus back on it. That we'd pray with one another, that we'd share the joy that it brings with one another, and that we might live for you in all that we do. Let me ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I invite you to